Well, we've been in a teaching series called Resilient. Resilient, and the, it's a discipleship uh, series on being transformed through emotional health. Uh, one of the key elements within a discipleship that just doesn't get talked about enough of, or emotional health. Uh, it's impossible to be spiritually mature if, if you're emotionally unhealthy. And so uh, today's topic is breaking the power of the past, breaking the power of the past. And when you think about the distinguishing characteristics that have been passed uh, down through your family tree, you may think of uh, big, beautiful brown eyes or blue eyes or whatever, or uh, great athletic ability or natural talent for painting or whatever. But it's not just the positive traits and characteristics that get passed down to us from generation to generation. I mean, each of us have been shaped by some of the not so healthy family traits and habits as well. Isn't that true? And uh, have you ever noticed as you look in the scriptures that how few examples there are of what we would call healthy families? I mean, that's true. Uh, There's no shortage of examples of unhealthy families uh, who struggled with uh, dysfunction. And I'll tell you why. Because there are no perfect families. All right? Uh, The playing field here is just kind of level. Let's just do that right away. All families are broken, some just more than others, right? And the reason being is that all of us live in a fallen world, and the Bible tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, our families are, um, they have dysfunction in them to some extent. Um, Jesus was the only one who ever walked this earth and lived here without sin. He, uh, the Bible says, was, was without sin. And, uh, but if you trace even Jesus's biological family here on earth back a few generations, then you would know that even Jesus came from a dysfunctional family. Uh, With his family origin were people who betrayed one another, or they they had adulterous affairs, they turned their backs on God, and on and on. So again, no perfect families, right? Uh, They don't exist. Every family has some dysfunction to some extent. And typically, no one has had more influence on our lives more than our families. I mean, your parents, your grandparents, um, or whoever your overseer was played a significant role in helping form your character personality, your, your behavior, how you think, uh, how you view and your perspective on life. And I think it's so easy for us to underestimate the deep unconscious imprint our families have had on our lives. Sometimes we don't even realize how much and how much is in there that we're not even, haven't even dealt with yet. Uh, so here's the challenge for all of us. So just because you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that some of the negative influences that you experienced growing up were automatically canceled out. Are you with me? I mean, yes, God took away your sin as you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, but that doesn't mean that he gave you amnesia, right? I mean, it's not like you, you've forgotten all the influences in your life and our past will still call to us. 
And some of those negative influencers are still there. Uh, Another way of saying this is that Jesus may live in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. (laughs) All right, you with me? Uh, So you see the challenge we have of discipleship as we, our, our heart and desire is to become more like Jesus and make a difference in this world that we live through who we are and the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those. Uh, but because according to Scripture, what happens in one generation often repeats itself to the next, whether for good or bad. Uh, and the good news this morning is this, that no matter how dysfunctional your family maybe was or is, God loves your family. That's number one, you need to understand that. And ultimately, God wants to use you. And he wants to use your broken and mired past for his good. Uh, Jesus said, I've come that you may have life. I'll tell you what else. He's come that you might break the chain of unhealthy cycle that's been in your family, that's been passed down through generations. And so that your family and your children and their children will have a better future in life. And they'll know Jesus and and experience the freedom uh, that, that we are. Jesus said, the same resurrection power that lives in me now lives in you. He not only needs, here's the deal, he only needs one person wholly surrendered to him to change future generations in your family. And you can be that person. You can be that person. But in order to do that, there's some stuff that we've got to deal with, all right? And that's what we're talking about today, going to the past. You've got to be willing to look back and examine how you've been influenced in, in your growing up years and how your past affects your present ability to love uh, the Lord and, and love others. In Lamentations uh, chapter 3, verse 30, it says, Let us examine our ways. Let us examine our ways and turn back to God. Why is it so important that we look back at our past and examine our past? We don't look back because we want to spend our lives back there. No. We don't look back because we want to get stuck with our past. That's the last thing we want to do. The only reason that we look back is because we are stuck. And because we are unable to move forward in the way that God wants us to move forward in our growth Uh, in our lives. And we can't move forward until we examine what negative views and traits need to be corrected, right? We can't move forward until we become aware of what we need to turn over to the Lord. So the only reason that you ever look back is is so you won't stay stuck. And so that we can move forward and grow in our walk with the Lord. Let me ask you this. How does it make you feel today when you hear that we're going to dig into your past in order to move forward. Does that excite anybody? <laughs> a little reluctant, scared or whatever. I, I, I know, here's, here's my thoughts. If it's going to help me to grow in my walk with Christ, if it's going to help me to love him more and love others more, bring it. All right? I bring it on. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Joseph and that's found in the first book of 
the Bible, Genesis, he starts in, his story starts in chapter 37, goes all the way to chapter 45. About one-fourth of the book of Genesis is about Joseph growing up to become an emotionally and spiritually mature believer in Christ. Uh, in, in the story of how he was able to break the cycle of dysfunction in his family and learning to love and to trust God with his whole heart and, and by choosing to forgive and to, to love those who'd hurt him and on and on. Joseph was one of 12 uh, sons. Um, his father Jacob had two wives and two concubines and, and there's where things get really messy. It's, there's always going to be, you know, some dysfunction when you have that. All their adult children were living under one roof and that made for a lot of family drama as you can imagine. Uh, just like most families, Joseph's family was characterized by great brokenness. And so if you're following along in your notes today, you can pull it out on your Brandywine app or the uh, program that you were handed coming in. Number one, the first key to breaking the power of the past is to recognize the destructive habitual behavior that's been going on in my family. One of the first unhealthy family dysfunctions that we see is in Joseph's family is that of favoritism. Favoritism. Chapter 37, Joseph is around 17 years old here. He's one of the youngest of Jacob's children. And verse 3 just, just tells us, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So here you have a dad who loved one kid more than he loved his others. He favored Joseph. And he gave him things he didn't give the others. He gave him a special coat, as you're aware, of many colors, and, uh, which represented receiving the birthright of him being the leader of the children, even though Joseph was not the firstborn, which was a big no-no, you know? Uh, and the thing that favoritism does in a family is it sets the other children up to be angry, to be jealous, it causes them to act out in all kinds of behavioral problem ways. And Joseph's brothers really, they literally hated him, the Bible says, to the point where they, they were, they were going to kill him. And they came up with this scheme. It's like, well, hey, we'll, we'll kill him and we'll fake his death and tell dad this is what happened. You know, his brother said, let's kill him and throw him down this deep pit. And then we'll take his shredded coat you know, the pretty coat, and we'll shred it up and, and, and take it back to dad and tell him, well, a wild animal must have got him. We don't know. I don't know. And so there was deception. And that's the second. That's number to the major dysfunction uh, you find in, in Joseph's family, deception. And of course, with deception comes lies and secrets and cover-ups, Right? And this is what was happening here in Genesis 37, 26. Judah said to his brothers, what would it gain by killing our brother Joseph? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, in other words, instead of killing him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders coming down the road there. And the funny thing about this is he said that we, we'd have to cover up the crime. Well, 
It's funny because they still had to cover up their crime. I mean, they were selling their brother to some traders headed to Egypt who would eventually sell Joseph to someone else as a slave. And so they're just, they're just like, Dad, we don't know what happened to him. They're still covering it up. And so Joseph's father showed favoritism. And we see this in Joseph's family generation, how they can often repeat themselves in these same dysfunctional ways. Uh, Joseph's father showed favoritism with his children, but his father did the same. Uh, experienced uh, as he was growing up. Joseph's grandfather showed favoritism as well. And it was the same with dysfunction, with the deception. There was a family history of deception all through Joseph's uh, uh, origin of his family. Joseph's father, grandfather, and great-grandfather all engaged in, in lying. It's there in, in the Old Testament. Lying, half-truths, secrecy, jealousy, you name it. But there was deception, there was favoritism. A third characteristic of, of a dysfunctional family is, is that of controls. Somebody in the family is just so controlling, kind of, kind of rules like a dictator, a very dominant, very demanding. You know, what they say is goes, right? Uh, it's their way or the highway kind of a thing. That's kind of the dynamic here. With no regard to the wishes of, or the feelings of the other family members. And if, if you make a mistake in this kind of a family atmosphere, there's severe consequences, right? And there's usually comes with it verbal abuse as well. A, a fourth family dysfunction, and you can maybe relate to some of this if you were in this kind of a family dynamic, is the inability to resolve conflict. Maybe your family was, had the inability to resolve conflict where arguments and disputes were just kind of the norm. Nothing ever got resolved. Your home is filled with extreme hostility because arguing is done in a harmful way and it just kind of leaves dead bodies, you know, wounded, deep wounds. Uh, and these homes are often characterized by having little or no communication, the, the inability to resolve any issues, which, what? It leads to more fighting and, and resentment and anger, and, um, which ultimately leads to number five, and that is broken relationships. Broken relationships. Someone cuts off a family member, uh, a relationship is severed, maybe with a a brother or sister or a parent, uh, and family members become estranged. Let me ask you this. Do you have a family member that you don't speak to? I know I'm, I'm meddling here, right? But do you have a family member that you avoid? And I realize that there's some, at times there's safety issues and boundary issues and all that. But a lot of times, we are very quick to cut off a family member. Uh, and you may look at these five dysfunctions and, and, and say, wow, we, our family's got four out of five of these, you know? It was George Centania who said, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And so what does a healthy family look like? 
what do you do if you got a dysfunction? What, what does a healthy family look like? Well, within a healthy family dynamic, people feel, number one, there's two words that come to mind. First of all, they feel safe. They feel safe. They feel both physically and emotionally safe in a healthy home, a healthy family. Uh, obviously, you don't let your kids play out in the street. You don't let them swallow Tide detergent pellets or, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but uh, they, they, uh, they, they feel loved, they feel valued, they feel recognized, they feel appreciated, all right? Uh, they feel safe. Secondly, they, the, the family, they're open. Family members can talk openly and share their opinions with one another. They don't have to agree with everything, and that's okay. They can disagree without losing it, you know, losing control. Um, there, there's no name-calling. There's, there's no yelling. There's no physical violence because mom and dad have taught their children about, how, uh, about conflict resolution and how to fight fair, you know? So... Uh, so let, let, me, let me give you some next steps on saying, man, I don't want to repeat this. In my, I'd like to see this cycle broken in my family. How do, how do I get there? Here's the next step. The first one is just to admit my brokenness, to admit my brokenness. Uh, to get to the point where you can admit that it's okay to not be okay, all right? Because uh, none of us are perfect. We just, we just talked about that. The Bible says it like this. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. As we say often around here in our Celebrate Recovery, we're only as sick as our secrets, right? And so, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse our families not just cleanse us, but cleanse our families from all wickedness. So the, the first step is to just admit it, you know? Admit, if I'm controlling, God, I'm controlling. Or I've got this issue, i got this addiction, I'm an alcoholic or whatever. I have an issue with favoritism. There's secrets going on in our family that should not be secrets, or right? Or I get angry and and when I get angry, it gets messy. Just admit it. Admit it. Admit your brokenness. Step number two. Step number two is to embrace the work of Christ. We need to embrace the work of Christ in our life. But in order to do that, we have to get honest with ourselves, get honest with God, get honest about our feelings, honest, express our feelings, and emotions rather than stuffing them uh, as if nothing's happened, you know? The key through this series has been for us to, to answer the question often, why am I feeling like this? What's going on inside of me that's making me, you know, why am I angry? Or why am I feeling depressed? Why? And it should be sought. It should be sought. And the good news is that through the work of Jesus Christ, in Christ, we can renew our minds. We can renew our minds so that he can transform us and help move us forward. All right? I like the way Paul puts it in Corinthians 3.18. 
beholding the glory of the Lord, we all are being transformed into his likeness. And so we're not talking about something that we do on our own. I mean, we're not talking about behavior modification here. That's not going to last. No, it's the power of God in us, right? That makes lasting change. Uh, Real and lasting change isn't behavior modification, but spiritual transformation. Amen? Ephesians 4, 21. I love uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here. He says, everything connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And, and then take on an entirety, entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Guess who does it? God does. He's the one that reproduces his character in us. He's the one that does the transforming. So that's step number two. Number three, and if you catch nothing else this morning, don't miss this. This is a key the junk going on in your family, this is the key to breaking that cycle, and that is to forgive, forgive and move on. Forgive and move on. That's how we break the cycle of dysfunction in our family. In our story here with Joseph, while Joseph was in Egypt, he was serving as a slave in the home of Potiphar. And of course, if you've read the story, you know that Joseph was falsely accused of of rape uh, and sent to prison for many years. I mean, he was put in prison somewhere between 10 and 13 years. Can you imagine? And he didn't do anything. And his life, all the way up to the age of 30, appeared to be a tragedy. I mean, if anyone should have been filled with bitterness and rage for so much family pain, it was Joseph, right? Yet, he didn't hold a grudge against his brothers for what they did. He didn't grow bitter. He just remained, he just kept a sweet victory in his heart and his life and his mind. He remained faithful, lover of God, and just loved people. And even with all the horrible events that took place outside of his control, the Bible would use this phrase about Joseph. It'd say, he walked with God. Through all the junk, he walked with God. And then the the incredible happened. After all these years, overnight, through the interpretation of a dream, Joseph was freed from prison and was made second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Amazing. And guess who comes to town? I mean, they have his... Joseph's brothers hadn't seen him since he was 17, and, and so there's no way he, they even recognized him because it's been so long. And they had no idea that Joseph had been put in such a powerful position in Egypt, and they didn't recognize him. And so we pick up our story in Genesis 45, uh, 4, and, and he says, I am Joseph, your brother, as their brothers are standing in his midst, not recognizing I'm, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. And they're, they're, I can just see all the blood rush out of there. Like, oh, no, we, we tried to kill this, our brother. We, we, we sold him into slavery. We're toast. He's, he's, 
he's in second command around here. But Joseph, look, look at uh, verse four. But Joseph looked at his brothers and said, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. <laughs> I mean, you can see Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. There was no, no resentment there. And, and no wonder God's favor was on this guy's life. He was just free from, from unforgiveness and bitterness. And from an earthly perspective, Joseph should have been a wreck, right? But God took the ugly pieces and made something beautiful. And that's what he wants to do with you and in your family. Uh, and that's what God did with my beautiful wife and her family. Uh, here's something really important that I've learned about recovery as I've studied that through the years. Genuine recovery is never complete until that person has helped another person recover. And so God wants to take the painful hurts from your past and actually use them to help minister to others. And that's exactly what God has done with my wife, my beautiful wife, who spends her life, uh, she helps lead our biblical counseling here at Brandywine and, and just loves pouring into people and helping them recover as well. What God gave beauty from ashes. She didn't come from a home like me. I did nothing to deserve being raised in a home like I was, a, a godly mom and dad, a healthy family. She didn't have that. But God gave beauty from ashes and joy instead of mourning. Won't you welcome Kathy Wright as she comes to share her story. but that's okay. I appreciate it. So it's good to be with you this morning, my family. During the Prohibition era in the early 1920s, three brothers with the last name of Sailor moved from Pennsylvania to the Ohio Valley <clears throat> region. One brother named James, he decided to continue on and settle in the hills of southeastern Kentucky, where he became a sharecropper as well as a um, proficient manufacturer of moonshine. James had four children by his first wife. After her death, he married a Cherokee woman named Etta Alexander, with whom he had four more children. They struggled under the weight of poverty during the Great Depression. My own father was number five of these eight children. Now, I do not believe that I'm either a product, a product of or responsible for the sins of my grandfather or my father. I do believe that Satan sets a trap of abuse and trauma to children that causes ripples of damage for generations to come. My father understood being poor and being hungry. Here are some of the events in my father's life that brought trauma and brokenness to him. He lost his left eye in a childhood accident which gave rise to cruelty among other children and, to, and with other adults with that handicap, with that visual handicap. He had a neighbor lady that would take him to a nearby church across the valley where he would quietly sneak out of, out of because about midway through worship, they brought out little wooden boxes for the snake handlers. So Satan planted the seed that Christianity's a fake. At 17 years of age, he followed uh, my grandfather James to a nearby tavern fight, only to witness him be murdered by another neighbor man. 
Now this neighbor would show my father his gun and threaten to kill him if he ever spoke about it to anyone. My father dropped out of school to finish raising his family. He quit school, he worked the farm, he hunted the land, and he carried the weight of a desperate situation on his shoulders. At the age of 18, my father joined the army to provide income for his mother. Just before leaving for the Philippines, he rode a bus to Winchester, Indiana, to purchase the small piece of land that they lived on so that his mother would continue to have a home. Some of the positive lessons born out of their hardship were self-made success, a very hard work ethic, and a love of all things nature and animals, and the ability to live very simply, to be content. However, childhood abuse and trauma left, left to fester will undoubtedly grow into patterns of great dysfunction. You know, Ecclesiastes reminds us that there really is nothing new under the sun. The pain of the past gave deep root to a blind rage, verbal, emotional, and physical abuse, immorality, and the inability to both give or receive love, and deep insecurity and jealousies. As a child, we desperately want to attach to a family unit for safety, for identity, and for security. When abuse and dysfunction are the norm in our homes, Children internalize all that is said and done, and they believe somehow that this is our fault and that you deserve this treatment. The sins of the parents wound you deeply, setting you up to repeat the very same dysfunction that you hate. See that trap of the enemy? We don't inherit their sin, but we learn the patterns and we act those out when we're outside of the will of God. I was rebellious, broken, and depressed as a young teenager. I felt completely unloved and completely alone. Then came Jesus. <laughs> I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior at the age of 16. And for the first time in my life, I felt loved. It was amazing. Jesus transformed and cleansed my heart. Jesus set me in a brand new family. I was given gifts to serve him and to call and a call for a purpose for my life. And I was absolutely terrified. I was so afraid. Salvation had come to my heart, but the work of renewing my mind, that was the hard part. After graduating from high school, I had the opportunity to, to attend Barclay College to be a part of their music program. I really believed I was not smart enough to pass my classes, but I knew that I could work hard. I was outgoing, I was funny, and I could sing. All those outward things are good, while on the inside I was completely shattered glass. I was so ashamed of who I'd been told I was, I held all that hurt inside. After the first week of Old Testament class, I went back to my dorm room bunk and I laid face down weeping into my pillow. I knew nothing about the Bible. How could I pass a stupid freshman 101 class where everyone else there was so far ahead of me? Now, have you ever just got a good Holy Ghost whooping? Anybody here ever just got a good Holy, maybe it's just me. I've gotten Holy Ghost whoopings before, okay? I mean, he gets a hold of your pity party, he cuts through your drama of the moment, and slaps you down with good truth, right? Well, I got mine that day. 
on the top of that bunk bed at college. And here is what the Lord spoke to me clearly. He said to me this, I wrote this book. Don't you think I can teach it to you? Let me repeat that. I wrote this book. Don't you think that I can teach it to you? I picked myself up. I began applying that farm work ethic to reading and learning the word of God. You see, the heart of transformation takes place the moment we confess our sins to Christ and we receive him as our personal savior. Thanks, thanks, thank you, God, for that. But the renewing of the mind takes every day following being devoted to his word. It takes prayer. It takes devotion to his bride, the church, and the fellowship of godly friends. It is work to renew our minds. Because I began to ask, the Holy Spirit put a hunger for the word of God in my heart. You see, the word of God is healing. It's wisdom. It's life. I began to spend Friday nights in the library with just my little study Bible. You know, my little, my little church that I was attending gave me a graduation gift, and it was a black New American Standard study Bible, hardcover, and it had those little notes at the bottom. Man, I thought I'd hit gold. It had those little study notes. It had concordances and maps in the back. I don't know if you like that, but that really thrills me. But anyway, I had my little study Bible that my little church gave to me as a gift and a, and a prayer journal. And I sat in that library and I began to dig. I began to heal. I was desperate to want to think and live differently than what I had known. For the first time, I had a sense of security and a place in the family of God, his church. I now had a purpose to live for, a hope that he would anoint me and that he would use me. Today, <laughs> I still love his word for how it feeds me and how it speaks to me. I love to worship. I love to pray. This is where we touch heaven, people. And I love that we can reach out and that we have online services. That's wonderful, especially during the pandemic. But there is nothing like being corporately gathered in the name of Jesus to bring him glory, right? There is nothing like corporate worship. I love it. I love to be in his house with his people, my true family. I still have a battle that rages and continues in my mind, but I have learned and continue to practice speaking Jesus over my family. My parents were both believers in Jesus Christ when they died. My sister also received Christ as a young teenager and walks with the Lord today. My brother got saved in the hog barn three days after our wedding, <laughs> where we shared our testimonies as a part of our marriage service. Jesus, your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. When I hear the words that I am worthless and will never amount to anything, I speak Jesus. The word says I have chosen you and I have not rejected you. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed because I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When I hear the words, you're stupid, your IQ is the lowest one of you three kids, I speak Jesus over that. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One, that is understanding. When I believe the lie that no one sees me, nobody cares about me or listens to my weeping, I speak Jesus and the word says to me, I love the Lord, for he has heard my voice. He has heard my cry for mercy. 
When I believe that nobody loves me, that I am unlovable, I speak Jesus. His word says to me, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? And for those of you who have been given a memory verse of that, there's about five of you, you can quote that. You take that. Amen. When I think that I'm too broken ever to do or to be any good to you, Lord, I speak Jesus. His word says to me, I'm sorry, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I just want to remind you, family, today, and all of us, we have been given this gift of salvation. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. We have redemption. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we have also been given the ultimate toolbox called the Word of God to teach us, to grow us, to heal us, to transform our thinking and our behaviors, and to give us wisdom. You just need to open the toolbox and begin using the tools that he's given. Jesus has come to break every stronghold, to shine through the shadows, and to burn like a fire. Speak the name of Jesus today. Thank you. Could have just let her preach. <laughs> she believes it and she lives it. And uh, here's the last step. Four is actually four, five, and six. And that is to learn to do life with my church family. If you want to change the cycle of your family, then learn to do life with your church family. And uh, the Bible says that as Christians, you and I have been birthed into a new family. For the believer, the church is now actually our first family. Apostle Paul says you are members of God's very own family and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. It doesn't say the church is like a family. Did you see that? It says the church is a family. We are a family. And 1 Timothy says the family is the church of the living God, the support and foundation of truth. The way the psalmist says that is that the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted where? Planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish. And uh, you know this or you wouldn't even be here today. But you and I can't grow to full maturity unless we are planted into the house of of the Lord. And the local church helps, gives us the support that we need to keep us growing, gives us the stability. And, uh, and these next two steps are with step four. Step five is ask God for his help and direction. He may lead you to some people in your church family that you didn't know before, and, and they're going to make a difference in your life. 
He may lead you in, uh, to a biblical counselor to celebrate recovery or to our Wellspring Mental Health Center or to some good Christian books or to a small group. Ask God for his help and direction. I'll tell you, Kathy mentioned the toolbox. Here at Brandywine, because we have 75 different, more than that, ministries, people leading ministries, a lot of them recovery ministries or whatever, counseling ministries, you have more tools available in your church than most. It's up to you whether you want to come and open the toolbox and get the tools and, and to grow. It is up to you. But it's here, and it's because of, of wonderful people giving their gifts of ministry. And uh, if you want to grow, you can grow, but you've got to open the toolbox and begin. Ask God for his help and direction. And the last one here is get around people who appear to be doing family well. Like, like that looks kind of like a healthy family. Get around them uh, if they appear to be doing family well. Um, the Apostle Paul said it like this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so you just need to find some folks here in your church family who seem to be healthy, who seem to be doing family well, and just kind of start stalking them. Are you with me? <laughs> All right. Uh, and you don't even have to tell them until they figure it out and it gets a little weird, you know, but, but, but I guarantee you, if you just hang around people who are a little bit healthier than you are, you're going to get healthier if you don't do anything else. That's discipleship. That's what it is. That's why we have things like marriage mentoring and all that here at Brandywine. Just hang out with some healthy people and you will get healthy yourself. All right. Well, here's the challenge in closing. In Jacob's family, the cycle wasn't broken until Joseph stepped up to be a chain breaker himself. Okay. I challenge everybody here. Again, all of us have some dysfunctional family and we ourselves have some dysfunction ourselves. I challenge you to be the person that breaks the cycle in your family because in Christ, you can break that cycle just like Kathy did in her family. Not only, God only needs one person wholly surrendered to Jesus Christ to change the future generations of your family and he wants to do it through you. You can be that person. Let's pray, elders and life group leaders, you come. Let's prepare our hearts. Father God, thank you today for your truth and your word. Man, your word is so powerful, it's so clear. I just pray for people here who maybe that, that step of forgiveness is a tough one. Lord, I, you said that if, if you can't forgive others, you, you can't forgive us. So God, I pray that we would let go. I pray in the next few minutes here as we seek you that your kingdom would come in our lives and that your will would be done in our lives and in our families. Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. If you've never taken that step of faith, salvation, today is your day. You just say, I want, I want this in my life. I want what you're talking about. I want to experience what Joseph did. 
You just say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. You came 2,000 years ago and died for my sins on the cross. And I believe that you're alive today, that you rose from the dead. And today I say yes to you. And I invite you to be the Lord of my life. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I just want to say thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you, God, for the message of the cross that death does not have the final word. Life comes out of death. Lord, thank you for paying for our, our debts, a debt that we couldn't pay, sins we could not. Thank you for the grace that you give. Man, our family's got junk. Your grace is greater. Your love is greater. Your mercies are greater. Thank you for adopting us into our, to your family. And thank you for the promised return of your bride, the church, that you're coming back for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Can we celebrate God's goodness and love for us today?